Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So good evening. It's so nice to see so many uh, great people in one room. And um, some of you, if you're surprised that a bell hasn't rung and we're not in formal sitting meditation, it's because tonight is poetry night. And um, um, The goal of Center of Gravity is to make this country safe for poetry. <laughs> for the future. And um, I have a couple things that I would like to announce um, before we uh, get going tonight. So, um, first of all, we have Aaron Robinson here. Aaron is a uh, wonderful inspirer and instigator in our community, in my life. Um, when I was thinking this afternoon about how to introduce Aaron, one of the things I thought is in the past year, when I sit down to write, uh, the audience in my head when I'm writing is Aaron, And uh, she uh, is an amazing critic and also somebody whose work I find very inspiring. And uh, usually those are not the same people. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my inner critic, 
who is a larger size of Aaron, <laughs> and uh, the person who I've been writing to uh, this year have been the same uh, interiorized version of Aaron. And it's also so nice that she lives on the other side of the park, and I can just send my work there by paper airplane. Uh, and Erin uh, is also uh, an excellent poet, and I hope tonight she might even read some of her own, one of her own poems. And uh, uh, Sarah Selecki, uh, Giller nominee, Nominess. <laughs> and um, uh, also just such a wonderful person. Like, it's so interesting because usually, you know, when you come in front of a room and there's distinguished people, you get to talk about how distinguished they are, but I just want to talk about how sweet they are as people. And Erin, um, uh, as many of you know, uh, wrote a book two years ago. Sarah. 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 Sorry, Sarah, two, two years ago? Uh, yeah. 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 But now this year is finally getting the attention yeah. it deserves. And uh, it's so nice to have her here. And if you haven't, some of you have been in the last class, but I just flew here from Germany. And I'm in a completely different time zone. <laughs> Austria via Germany. Uh, what time is it Six hours. Yeah. Okay. I can't even answer that, that question. So, if I doze off in the middle of the evening, please excuse me. Me, Sarah. How many times have I done that? No. Okay. So, before I begin, I, I want to have just a little short ritual, which is um, I have made some. Uh, decisions today, and the first decision is that uh, I've nominated uh, Aaron as Poet Laureate hmm. of Center of Gravity. <laughs> and so this year, for, for the next year, for the next 12 months, so this is a necklace for you. Oh my god. And, um, can I tie it? Yeah, I accept. <laughs> and, uh... You're now officially the Poet Laureate, the first Poet Laureate. Can everyone read it? It says, I am the Poet Laureate of CFG. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And, and it comes with a stack of paper for the Poet Laureate uh, to write poems on for the next year. And maybe next time you're up here, you can read some of the poems. I accept. Yeah. And, um... I have nominated Sarah Selecki as writer-in-residence <laughs> at Center of Gravity. Uh, Did you get to live here? <laughs> what are the duties of the writer-in-residence? And Sarah um, also will receive uh, a stack of paper. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for writer in residence, oh, wow. a tullus for oh. <laughs> <laughs> you each. Matches your shirt. It's perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, amazing <laughs> honor. 
So there you go. Wow. I thought wow. that would be a nice way for us to, to Thank start. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go to bed now. <laughs> so uh, last time we did this, we basically just went one at a time, and mm -hmm. we, we um, told stories and read poems. And so I think that's what we'll do. And I encourage you, you know, to really listen to these poems with your whole heart, because they've all been uh, picked to encourage us in our practice and in our life and in our um, uh, artistic ambitions uh, to go forward. And um, maybe we'll begin with Sarah. Sure, I'd love to start. Um, as writer in residence. As writer, in, I. I promise to write <laughs> and be in residence all year. Um, <clears throat> before I read the first poem that I brought, I want to just give a, a prologue or an introduction, which is, um, those of you who know me have heard me say this before, probably. Those of you who don't know me, um, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> I, I actually really dislike poetry most of the time, um, which is why this is my favorite poetry reading of the year. This is my annual event. <laughs> this is the only poetry reading I attend. <laughs> I'm being, take me with a little bit of a grain of salt here, but um, the poems that I've chosen to read tonight, many of them I read last year as well. They are my favorites. Um, they're the ones that rise out, and I spent a lot of time um, especially today and last night, just going through all of these collections, looking for something that I felt was um, worth bringing to the pile of poems that I read last year. And there are only a few new ones. Most of them are repeats. Um, having said that, I would read Erin Robinson's poems if she wasn't reading them herself. <laughs> Good choice of Pulley Laureate. So this first one, this is a new one. It's by a poet named Sherita Warner. And it's called November. Outside the train station, a man barbecues sweet potatoes over a fire he's built in the back of his truck. Someone hands out pamphlets from the local temple boasting the season's flowers. Japanese plum, witch hazel, yellow plum, camellia. A woman runs for the train, pinwheel in her hand a blur of red. The neighbors snap the last of the persimmons from the tree before the frost breaks. Without a word, the woman leans over her fence and hands me a full bag. Twice this month, I mistook a light on the fifth floor apartment for the moon. I'm going to read uh, from the book Wild Waves by a poet named Ikkyu, who was a real troublemaker. And uh, even though he was the abbot of a uh, Zen monastery, uh, you'll hear in his poems that his interest in uh, Buddhist form um, uh, uh, 
uh, sort of decreased the older that he got. And um, you can really hear this. This is uh, 14th century Japan. And um, Ikkyu is a seminal figure, not only uh, in Zen Buddhism, but also, um, like so many uh, great Zen teachers, also in the world of um, Japanese art and uh, calligraphy and drawing and poetry especially. <clears throat> Ten days in this temple and my mind is reeling. Between my legs, the red thread stretches and stretches. If you come some other day and ask for me, it's better to look for me in a fish stall, a sake shop, or a brothel. <laughs> Crazy cloud blown by who knows what, wild wind. In the mountains by day, in the city by night. A master's handiwork cannot be measured, but still priests wag their tongues explaining about the way and babbling on and on about Zen. This old monk has never cared for false piety, and my nose wrinkles at the dark smell of incense before the Buddha. A master practiced Zen while rowing a boat. A monk gathered rush leaf to make sandals. I always praise the great worth of a single raincoat and straw hat, but who is there to really appreciate their true elegance? Kind of the, the best invitation ever to um, be asked to do a reading where you get to read poems that you like of other people's uh, to a group of people whose practice is listening. Um, most poetry readings are not like this. <laughs> and um, so, if anyone didn't know, it's a poetry reading. Uh, I think this is a really special one. And um, <coughs> I kind of think every artist should get a chance to do a show or do a reading uh, of not their own work. It's it's, incredib it's incredibly um, emboldening. <laughs> uh, it's just mostly I just wait to hear what. Um, and really, the reason I think I started coming to Center of Gravity a couple of years ago was because I thought Michael picked or had an amazing uh, taste in, in poetry. And um, so I thought I would start with, with this poem. And this, this poem I actually read last year, too. It's the, I think it's essential <laughs> for tonight. It's called In the Beauty Created by Others by Adam Zagajewski. Only in the beauty created by others is there consolation in the music of others and in others' poems. Only others save us even though solitude tastes like opium. The others are not hell. If you see them early, with their foreheads pure, cleansed by dreams. That is why I wonder what word should be used, he or you. Every he is a betrayal of a certain you. But in return, someone else's poem 
offers the fidelity of a sober dialogue. favorite part about this night is and that's seeing the conversations that happen between the poems <laughs> um, so I'll answer that with let me make this perfectly clear by Gwendolyn McEwen I have never written anything because it is a poem this is a mistake you always make about me a dangerous mistake I promise you I'm not writing this because it is a poem you suspect this is a posture or an act. I'm sorry to tell you, it is not an act. You actually think I care if this poem gets off the ground or not. Well, I don't care if this poem gets off the ground or not. And neither should you. All I have ever cared about, and all you should ever care about, is what happens when you lift your eyes from this page. Do not think for one minute that it is the poem that matters. It is not the poem that matters. You can shove the poem. <laughs> what matters is what is out there in the large dark and in the long night, breathing. One more from Ikkyu. <laughs> a woman's vagina. This is a Zen monk <laughs> <laughs> writing in a monastery. <laughs> A woman's vagina. It has the original mouth, but remains wordless. It is surrounded by a magnificent mound of hair. Sentient beings can get completely lost in it, but it is also the birthplace of all the Buddhas, of 10,000 worlds. Buddhist disciples never really got the message. But I, a blind donkey, knows the truth. Love can make you immortal. The autumn breeze of a single night of love is better than a hundred thousand years of sterile sitting meditation. Stilted koans and convoluted answers are all that monks really have, pandering endlessly to officials and rich patrons. Good friends of the Dharma, so proud, let me tell you, a brothel girl in gold brocade is worth more than any of you. <laughs> oh yeah, so we really have no idea what's coming uh, between us. And so, so um, that's from my old bookshelf. It is. Um, so it's totally messing up the order because now poems are starting to speak. <laughs> um, this is Robert Bringhurst. Um, this is from the Book of Silences, I think it's called. It's called uh, Bayan Wenli. Where are you going, he said. And I said, I don't know. Not knowing is close, he said. Soon after that, I decided to stay in one place for a while. The local tradition is this. 
that waking and dreaming, arriving and leaving, are flower and stem. That we are where we are each day, eating the answer each day and excreting the question. Giving back shit, which the flowers and fireflies eat, or hiding the shit, or feeding the shit to our friends and our children, and giving back nothing. The whole is the truth, which is here, just as we are, tying its shoe with its coat on one shoulder. The truth, like the rest of us, dies and is born and goes on with the business of living. What shall I do with the night and the day, with this life and this death? Every step, each breath, rolls like an egg to the edge of this question. Can you do the last couple lines again? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Want the whole poem again? No? <laughs> I know this is poet um, David White. Every poem he, he reads at a reading, he reads twice. It's great. <laughs> uh, Just those last couple lines. Last, like, five lines. The last five lines? So what shall I do? Yeah. What shall I do with the night and the day? with this life and this death. Every step, every breath, rolls like an egg to the edge of this question. Mm. Um, this is Alone, with Jack Gilbert. I never thought Mushiko would come back after she died. But if she did, I knew it would be a, as a lady in a long white dress. It is strange that she's returned as somebody's Dalmatian. I meet the man walking her on a leash almost every week. He says good morning and I stoop down to calm her. He said once that she was never like that with other people. Sometimes she is tethered on their lawn when I go by. If nobody is around, I sit on the grass. When she finally quiets, she puts her head in my lap and we watch each other's eyes as I whisper in her soft ears. She cares nothing about the mystery. She likes it best when I touch her head and tell her small things about my days and our friends. That makes her happy the way it always did. Hmm. It's, hard. it's hard to know, man. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is from my favorite translator and poet, W.S. Merwin. It's called Yesterday. It's very blurry. <laughs> my friend says I was not a good son. You understand? I say yes, I understand. He says I did not go to see my parents very often, you know. And I say, yes, I know. Even when I was living in the same city, he says, maybe I would go there once a month, or maybe even less. I say, oh, yes. 
He says, the last time I went to see my father, I say the last time I saw my father, he says, the last time I saw my father, he was asking me about my life, how I was making out, and he went into the next room to get me something, to give something to me. Oh, I say, feeling again the cold of my father's hand the last time, he says, and my father turned in the doorway and saw me look at my wristwatch, and he said, you know, I would like you to stay and talk with me. Oh, yes, I say. But if you're busy, he said, I don't want you to feel that you have to just because I'm here. I say nothing. He says, my father said maybe you have important work you're doing or maybe you should be seeing somebody. I, I don't want to keep you. I look out the window. My friend is older than I am, he says. And I told my father it was so, and I got up and left him then, you know, though there was nowhere I had to go and nothing I had to do. Easter 1960. It's by Sharon Olds. Thank you, Karina. The doctor on the phone was young, maybe on his first rotation in the emergency room. On the ancient boarding school radio in the attic hall, the announcer had given my boyfriend's name as one of two brought to the hospital after the sunrise service the egg hunt, the crash. One of them critical, one of them dead. I was looking at the stairwell banisters, at their lathing, the necks and knobs like joints and bones, the varnish here thicker, here thinner. I had said, which one of them died? And now the world was an ant's world, the huge crumb of each second thrown somehow up into my back, and the young, tired voice said my fresh love's name. It would have been nice to tear out the balusters and the rail and the stairs, like a big backbone out of a brontosaur, to take some action, to do and do and do as a done-to, and a dear one to a done-to-death, too, to have run on a treadmill all night to light the dorm, the entire school, with my hate of fate, and blow its wiring and the town's wiring, pull the wires of Massachusetts out of the switchboard of the country. I went back to my room. I did not know how to get out of the world or how to stay. I sat on the floor with the Sunday Times and read the columns of the first page down and then the next and then the next. I can still see how every A, initiator of his given name, looked eager, it hadn't heard yet, that its boy was gone. And every F hung down its head on its broken neck, its little arms held out, as if to say, you see me, this is what I am.
answer that with another Merwin. <laughs> um, we have to have an evening of Merwin. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's either that or my Sharon Olds. But <laughs> <clears throat> it says, thanks. Listen, with the night falling, we are saying thank you. We're stopping on the bridge to bow from the railings. We're running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water looking out in different directions, back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging. After funerals, we're saying thank you. After the news of the dead. Whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. In a culture up to its chin in shame, living in the stench it has chosen, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the back door and the beatings on stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks that use us, we are saying thank you. With the crooks in office, with the rich and fashionable, unchanged, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, our lost feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us like the earth, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving, dark though it is. Um. Sometimes I like to say that uh, the practice that we do here is not part of one particular lineage, uh, but it's actually not true. Um, because the lineage that I feel closest to uh, is the lineage of everyone who, uh, out of their practice, uh, manifested some sort of creative response to their lives. And what I've always found fascinating about the Dharma is that, especially in the West, especially in the West, is that it's uh, found a home in the world of uh, artists. And um, when I was first attracted to Buddhism, it was really through people like Jack Kerouac. And this sense that there was an association with this practice and uh, what the Buddha called going against the stream which for Jack Kerouac was uh, hitting the road. And um, most of you who know a little bit about Jack Kerouac's writing probably also know that most of the characters in his books are modeled after people who were practicing Buddhism at that time, who were really inspiring to him, who all took summer jobs uh, in towers in the forest watching for oncoming uh, forest fires. And um, Philip Whalen is one of those people, and I keep his picture up here. And uh, this summer I had the good fortune of, uh, no, not this summer, last year, last January, I had the good fortune of going to San Francisco, and I found the place where he used to live. And uh, in the room, he died uh, over a decade ago, and in his old bedroom found his books, an archive that they didn't even know was there. And in the books, all kinds of letters to him from Gary Snyder and Allen Ginsberg and all kinds of people. And it was really amazing. And I was with my son, who's seven, and I was like, look at this letter from Allen Ginsberg. And, you know, 
Anyways, it's kind of a really nice moment on my own. And um, uh, Allen Ginsberg is also somebody whose photograph we used to have up at Center of Gravity, but has disappeared. Um, and uh, he's somebody that really, uh, for me, uh, uh, embodies, I think, uh, what this practice is alive in spirit. Um, I think there's so many people who get the form of this practice, but not always the spirit of uh, what this brings out in all of us. So anyways, uh, Allen Ginsberg went through a phase where he was writing a lot about um, Charon, who's a, a figure, well, actually in world mythology, uh, but especially in Greek mythology, who is basically the person who takes people uh, by uh, river um, to Hades or to the underworld. And um, this is what Allen Ginsberg used to do. He used to lie down and he used to meditate until he started seeing visions. And then he would just write for days and days sometimes at a time. So this comes from a very fruitful time um, where uh, you can just hear his beautiful daydreaming uh, clear mind. It's called A Supermarket in California. What thoughts I have of you tonight, Walt Whitman, for I walk down the side streets under the trees with a headache, self-conscious, looking at the full moon. In my hungry fatigue and shopping for images, I went into the neon fruit supermarket, dreaming of your enumerations. What peaches and what penumbras, whole families shopping at night, aisles full of husbands, wives in the avocados, babies in the tomatoes, and you, Garcia Lorca, what were you doing down by the watermelons? <laughs> I saw you, Walt Whitman, childless, lonely old grubber, poking among the meats in the refrigerator and eyeing the grocery boys. I heard you asking questions of each. Who killed the pork chops? What price bananas are you, my angel? I wandered in and out of the brilliant stacks of cans following you, and followed in my imagination by a store detective. We strode down the open corridors together in our solitary fancy, tasting artichokes, possessing every frozen delicacy, and never passing the cashier. Where are we going, Walt Whitman? The doors close in an hour. Which way does your beard point tonight? I touch your book and dream of our odyssey together in the supermarket and feel absurd. Will we walk all night through solitary streets? The trees add shade to shade, lights out in the houses. We'll both be lonely. We will stroll dreaming of the lost America of love, past blue automobiles and driveways, home to our silent cottage. Oh, dear father, graybeard, lonely old courage teacher, what America did you have when Charon quit pulling his ferry and you got out on a smoking bank and stood watching the boat disappear on the black waters of Lethe.
Oh, I love. I always want to say to people, which way does your beard point? <laughs> people have a beard now. <laughs> Such a good point. Um, I thought that well, part of the reason we started with this, and it's funny because it, on certain uh, surfaces, it there's a lot more amplification. Yeah, maybe at the end we can try something else on my table. It's really loud. So it, I thought this wooden block would work, but it was obviously quite quiet. But um, part of the reason I wanted to start with music is just because I think that poetry really takes us into this different relationship often with language that we can, especially poetry where we can rec receive it, I think, more like music in, in some ways in that it's um, we don't have to get everything, which is so great, and in, in that gets you know, more. And uh, so that was the idea here. And I also, but I also think, um, like that amazing poem you read about, no, no, the one before, um, that the poem doesn't, that the poem doesn't, that the poem doesn't, it's not about the poem, and, or, Poems can be in a. Um, my favorite poems are usually like uh, visual art or performance art, actually. So, <laughs> so I wanted to um, read you some um, some paintings. Um, just as a break from the words too, but just as a, also as a kind of synesthesia to kind of let all these forms just be poetry or, or not poetry or paintings, whatever. So, um, these are uh, a couple of Yoko Ono's instruction paintings. Um, or paintings to be constructed in your head. So if you want to construct these paintings in your head, you're welcome to. <laughs> um, this is a painting for cowards. It's a painting to shake hands. Drill a hole in a canvas and put your hand out from behind. Receive your guests in that position. Shake hands and converse with hands. The other week, my friend Andrea uh, led me blindfolded all over Toronto. It's my birthday present, and um, <laughs> I, and um, she <laughs> she we, she uh, I had to go to the bathroom eventually, and so she brought me into this building, and she there were all these sort of paintings on the wall. I think it was a U of T building. I still don't really know where I was, but she would tell me about the paintings, <laughs> and so I had all these paintings constructed in my in my head, which gave me a whole new appreciation for for these wonderful um, paintings by Yoko Ono. This is called Painting to See the Room. <clears throat> Drill a small, almost invisible hole in the center of the canvas and see the room through it. This is painting to let the evening light go through. Painting to let the evening light go through. Hang a bottle behind a canvas. Place the canvas where the west light comes in. The painting will exist when the bottle creates a shadow on the canvas, or it does not have to exist. The bottle may contain liquor, water, grasshoppers, ants, or singing insects, or it does not have to contain. 
the amazing ones. I was going to read more. <laughs> um, but the reason I thought that is because speaking of uh, not getting everything, I think this is one of those. For instance, I still don't understand the title. Maybe there's some like Greek scholars who know what Chaldaic is. First Chaldaic Oracle. It's Aaron Carson poem, so I'm imagining it's Greek. Chaldaic? It doesn't matter. <laughs> I hope she's not listening. <laughs> there is something you should know. And the right way to know it is by a cherrying of your mind. Because if you press your mind towards it and try to know that thing, as you know a thing, you will not know it. It comes out of red, with kills on both sides. It is scrap. It is nightly. It kings your mind. No, scorch is not the way to know that thing you must know. But use the hum of your wound and flame pit out everything, right to the edge of that thing you should know. The way to know it is not by staring hard, but keep chiseled, keep progging the eye. Keep progging the eye of your soul and reach mind empty towards that thing you should know until you get it, that thing you should know. Because it is out there, orchid, outside your and, it is. <laughs> Um, thank you. Um, over here in the center of the altar is Quan Yin, who is kind of the guardian of uh, this place. And um, Quan Yin is the uh, female manifestation of Avalokiteshvara, whose uh, name means in English, one who hears the cries of the world and is the Buddhist deity of compassion. And uh, when Avalokiteshvara goes to China, um, he becomes a woman. And um, so this is Quan Yin. And uh, if you look at her, she's holding a vase. And it's said this vase, uh, she has been collecting her tears. And she puts her tears in this vase. And her tears are also your tears. So she's been collecting all of your tears, not just this year, uh, but all of your tears since you were born. And then she takes the vase, which is what she's doing here, and she pours it out into the ocean. And what's beautiful about this image is its saline quality. Your tears are salt water and are made up of the same thing as the ocean. And... Um, in a way, she's telling you, you know, that though your tears are personal and you have to hold them like a vase close to your heart, at some point we also have to just pour them back into the ocean. And our tears literally are made up of the same stuff. Even though I think we all feel like my tears are so, this is how I define the difference between me and you is, you know, um, my sadness must be deeper. Yeah. or more meaningful you know. or they don't have any meaning and I want to have more meaning the poets are so meaningful and I don't and, um, 
And so when I travel, I always take a miniature version of Kuan Yin with me, and I set her up in a little altar wherever I go. And uh, if, uh, if I'm away from that altar, I keep her on my screensaver. So then I look at her on my screensaver so that I'm never away from her. And um, then hopefully her image kind of stays with me. And um, so uh, I wrote a poem today for tonight, uh, which is called Ode to Kuan Yin. I started it staring at her on Sunday night in, um, where was I? In Vienna on Sunday. And um, I finished it this afternoon. Ode to Kuan Yin. You can look at her while I read this, because this, it, I wrote this just looking at her, pretty much. You have small wrists and hips. Your little vase pours out the merits of pity. The winds in your call, your skin, your voice, as soft as a turned page. Send me a new word for love, and I'll light a match. Send me a letter for faith, for faith. And I'll stop yelling at people. Last night on the long flight home from Frankfurt, the topsy Irish man beside me asked about you, dear Yin, Quan Yin, screensaver. Why the vase, he asked. It's filled with her tears, I said. Holy shit, he said. <laughs> what? That's a fuck of a lot of tears. <laughs> Everywhere, people eat on their feet, screaming machines. But some things are very still. A museum case, beige landmines, fire escapes, sprinkler heads, yellowed plants. I am none of those. You, Quan Yin, have cherry cheeks, though when I touch them, they're cold bronze. Like beach stones, once I get you home, you're still salty. performance <laughs> did you do that on purpose which the, part the softness of the turn page right before the page turn? oh i didn't even think of that that's what i thought too oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice line break yeah yeah i worked on that <laughs> today wow well michael wrote us today and was like i hope you're reading something of yours and so I, des um, I decided to, I, I grabbed something out of my notebook, which I never do. I, Michael has been a real inspiration for me in terms of writing a poem that day and reading it that night. And I, I never uh, do that. <laughs> so this isn't written today, but it, it is uh, never looked at since it was, since it was written. <clears throat> 
There's something about reading like your your favorite poems that really makes you feel um you know you don't have to show your your best, which is such a necessary thing <laughs> in writing poetry. <clears throat> it's called Emily. To your funeral, I will wear teeth, freshly ground that night. I will wear my scalp and nothing else. Will carve the hair away from my head and pretend I'm you, healed, for me to talk to in the bathroom. There's nothing similar about us, but for the skull that we both miraculously possessed during the, during the same three decades on the same small part of earth. just tell them it's yours. I know, I could. <laughs> they might recognize it. I'm going to read one that um, I love so much and I read and reread so much and have re read so much that it's in my cells anyway. Um, it's Mary Oliver poem, <laughs> Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination and calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Well, I can't get through an evening. Actually, I can barely get through a day without <laughs> reading Philip Whalen. Philip Whalen's not so well known as a poet, but this happens in any scene, is that Philip Whalen is the person that a lot of the beat writers look to for inspiration. But as Philip Whalen started to get well known, he sold everything he had. He moved into the San Francisco Zen Center, had a room with no uh, possessions except for his books, and uh, he lived for the next uh, three or four decades of his life there. And uh, every once in a while he wrote a poem, but his favorite thing to do was to eat Chinese food. <laughs> and that's what he did. He ate a lot of Chinese food. And, uh, and he wrote poetry and he, his way of writing poetry was basically just to write everything that was in his mind in a moment. And uh, his poetry is so honest and it has this mix of delusion and enlightenment always at the same time. Always at the same time. 
Uh, his dream, which is my dream, which I'm hopefully going to fulfill this coming year, uh, he always wanted to go to Kyoto. And so he went to Kyoto in 1966 and he wrote this poem. I went to visit several thousand gold Buddhas. They sat there all through the war. They didn't appear just now because I happened to be in town. They sat there 600 years. Failures. Does Buddha fail? Do I? Someday I guess I'll never learn. He, he always has in his poems the sense of um, dist distant and immediacy and also um, this experience of uh, disappointment. Um, I want to read this poem one more time because it actually has so many layers in it. But if these Buddhas have been there so long through so many wars, his sense is they failed. And then there's kind of this reflection back to him. His life is committed to following the path of the Buddha. Does that mean the Buddha is a failure? If he is the Buddha, is he a failure? And then there's this double ironic twist at the end. It's really, he's so sharp. So I'll read it one more time. We'll try and listen this time. I went to visit several thousand gold Buddhas. They sat there all through the war. They didn't appear just now because I happened to be in town. They sat there 600 years, failures. Does Buddha fail? Do I? Someday I guess I'll never learn. <laughs> Someday, I guess, I'll never learn. <laughs> How many? Well, maybe one more each after this. Okay. You mean two back? Mm -hmm. One more. I think so, because it's a <laughs> And then we'll let people talk. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. for, the, for the last one, can I read? One's very short. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> We're each going to read one more after this, and then we'll open it up so we can all talk. But I can read one. I'm going to read two. You can read as many as you want. This is Camille Martin. I think she lives in, in Toronto. I would love to see her read. I, I, I'm excited to know that she's in this city. Is anyone friends with Camille Martin? She's amazing. And, and this, uh, this book is definitely one of those books that I read like I'm listening to like jazz or something. Because <laughs> there's just this, like, you, you'll see. And actually, this is kind of one of the more uh, kind of co coherent in a meaning way um, poem of hers, actually. But they're just the textures are are gorgeous, her textures of, of language and uh, disconnect as much as connect, I, I find. Um, 
And yet this one, anyway, you'll see. It's called Shifting Scene. The self quietly patches together its narratives and like a horoscopist, melts into its stories within sight of I am. Elsewhere in its house, it eavesdrops on dutiful reports swept along by undercurrents. Its prattle disguised from its upper story, it hums and loses itself as it mines its workshop, its setup, that control center of shadow boxing in a ghost town. The self is well-meaning in its launch of a protagonist in the author and of a sun inside its naked eye. Its memoirs swarming with nebulous runes, it gambles on disillusion. When a cold snap flaunts its tedious test patterns, the self plays dumb with the body's borders and masks and fabricates its grammar in dark minds. There it supposes wild and artificial horizons, the stuff of color oozing from rocks, torrents of sediment falling homeward. After its once upon a time, the rules of its syntax spell losses and oddities. The tumult of its artless fiction gives rise to the self, which forages for a reading, for it is inscribed in desire to call quarries into question with fissures, to evolve moments from substance, and to embody within its flickering senses an awakened plot. not here tonight, but I'm going to dedicate this to Ryan Henderson. The Seed Market. Can you find another market like this? Where, with your one rose, you can buy hundreds of rose gardens? Where, for one seed, you get a whole wilderness? For one weak breath, the divine wind? You've been fearful of being absorbed in the ground or drawn up by the air. Now your water bead lets go and drops into the ocean where it came from. It no longer has the form it had, but it's still water. The essence is the same. This giving up is not a repenting. It's a deep honoring of yourself. When the ocean comes to you as a lover, marry at once, quickly, for God's sake. Don't postpone it. Existence has no better gift. No amount of searching will find this. A perfect falcon, for no reason, has landed on your shoulder and become yours. One of the things that I love about Japanese poetry is when you start to get to know the people who wrote the poems. And early in their career, usually they're really clever. You know, and uh, you can be amazed by their cleverness. And then as they get older, their poems become more simple mm -hmm. and uh, more quiet. And um, a tradition among poets starting in about uh, the 1300s in Japan was to write a death poem. And you wrote a death poem in your old age. Uh, but many people, that would be the last thing they would do. They would write their death poem and then they would die. And uh, 
Kozan Ichikyo, 77 in 1360, and he um, uh, knew he was going to die, so he didn't want a ceremony. He asked his uh, students to bury him when he died with no ceremony, and his ceremony was uh, to write a poem. Uh, he wrote this poem, he put his brush down, and then he died sitting upright. Empty-handed, I entered the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. I died June 2nd, 1827, like dewdrops on a lotus leaf, I vanish. I'll read it one more time. (laughs) Empty-handed, I entered the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. I died June 2nd, 1827. Like dewdrops on a lotus leaf, I vanish. Much has been written about this poem, actually, because he died in 1360. (laughs) But actually, uh, one of the meanings that's read into this poem was that um, because he's still using the first person, that actually once he died, that first person was so invested in life that it wouldn't really die until 1827. So it's like a play in reincarnation, right? Is that like, I'm going to get reborn, but here he dies, but this story of himself never really quite dissipates until 1827. <laughs> so good. Okay, I want to read one more poem. Um, I wanted to read a poem by Elizabeth Bishop. And then uh, I looked in a book uh, to find the poem, and then I discovered that she actually translated a bunch of poems. And I never knew she was a translator. Um, This is by uh, someone named Carlos Drummond, um, who apparently she knew personally. I don't know the whole story. Um, It's called Don't Kill Yourself. Okay? (laughs) We need you around here. We've got a lot to do. We need to get a new space and uh, keep this community going. So hang around a little longer. Don't kill yourself. Carlos, keep calm. (laughs) Such a good story. (laughs) It might be a good short story. (laughs) Carlos, keep calm. Love is what you're seeing now. Today, a kiss. Tomorrow, no kiss. Day after day, tomorrow's Sunday, and nobody knows what will happen Monday. It's useless to resist. It's useless to commit suicide. Don't kill yourself. Don't kill yourself. Keep all of yourself for the nuptials. Coming, nobody knows when. 
that is, if they ever come. <laughs> Love, Carlos, Tellurian spent the night with you, and now your insides are raising an ineffable racket with prayers, victrolas, saints crossing themselves, ads for better soap, a racket of which nobody knows the why or wherefore. In the meantime, Carlos, you go on your way, vertical, <laughs> melancholy. You're a palm tree. You're a cry nobody heard in the theater. And then all the lights went out. Love in the dark. No, love in the daylight. Love in the daylight is always sad. Sad, Carlos, my boy but tell it to nobody, nobody knows, nor shall know. Okay, you have to end with some fireworks right. now. <laughs> well, this is perfect that I get to end because there were two, two poems that, that are for you especially for, for everyone uh, in this room. Um, this one is by Billy Collins. It's The Trouble with Poetry, which is the, the title of the book. The Trouble with Poetry. The Trouble with Poetry, I realized, as I walked along a beach one night, cold Florida sand under my bare feet, a show of stars in the sky. The trouble with poetry is that it encourages the writing of more poetry, more guppies crowding the fish tank, more baby rabbits hopping out of their mothers into the dewy grass. How will it ever end? Unless the day finally arrives when we have compared everything in the world to everything else in the world. <laughs> and there is nothing left to do but quietly close our notebooks and sit with our hands folded on our desks. Poetry fills me with joy and I rise like a feather in the wind. Poetry fills me with sorrow, and I sink like a chain flung from a bridge. But mostly, poetry fills me with the urge to write poetry. To sit in the dark and wait for a little flame to appear at the tip of my pencil. And along with that, the longing to steal, to break into the poems of others with a flashlight and a ski mask. And what an unmarried band! <laughs> and what an unmarried band of thieves we are! Cut purses, common shoplifters. I thought to myself, as a cold wave swirled around my feet, and the lighthouse moved its megaphone over the sea, which is an image I stole directly from Lawrence Ferlinghetti, <laughs> to be perfectly honest for a moment. The bicycling poet of San Francisco, whose little amusement park of a book I carried in the side pocket of my uniform, up and down the treacherous halls of high school. Um, and the, the last piece is very, very short. It's by um, this amazing Japanese poet, um, whose last name I don't know how to pronounce, if anyone knows it, is uh, Takashi Hirade. Does anyone know this poet? Uh, it's written in the 80s, and they're all just these very, very short uh, little pieces. And so I thought if the center of gravity ever needs uh, a new chant or anything. This is, I don't know. <laughs> it's a good alternate chant. A prayer. <clears throat> May the hairy danger always keep holding your hand. May the wicked prayers 
and select anxieties always move my lungs. And may the days not run by, the sound of love nearly escape confirmation, and the bone ash of our repeatedly burning stories cook our deeds in the furnace of destruction's truth. Do you want it again? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> May the hairy danger always keep holding your hand. May the wicked prayers and select anxieties always move my lungs. And may the days not run by, the sound of love nearly escape confirmation, and the bone ash of our repeatedly burning stories cook our deeds in the furnace of destruction's truth. <laughs> and it's from the fighting spirit of the walnut which is I think a pretty good title <laughs> so thank you for sitting and listening to all these poems never gonna end really <laughs> we usually end by chanting but before we do so maybe we can just take a few minutes does anybody have anything they want to say or what did you observe what did you feel when you moved out of boredom and into connection with some of these people's words? Initially, I was trying, struggling, like, what does that mean? Hmm. I can't, I don't understand it. And then I noticed what I was doing in my mind, and I thought, I'm just going to meditate. I'm just going to, like, experience it. Yeah. And not think. <coughs> and that's what I did. <laughs> just. Um, what touched me the most was uh, just the humanness and the brokenness that came through, and you know, the guy who eats Chinese food and like the, the monk that would rather be in a brothel. And it's just so heartening, you know, it's just so like, oh yeah, right. Like we're all, you know, our lives are not, you know, the things that we're struggling so hard to get, yeah. you know, we can let go a little bit and, and we can walk lightly and, yeah. um, and cherish it, but, but not in a self-cherishing way. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Ikkyu, right before he died, he wrote that death poem, but the poem he wrote before that was, um, there's only one koan that really matters. You. <laughs> and uh, I 
I think it relates to what a few of you have said so far, which is like a koan is the riddle that you can't understand. And in a way, that's the only thing that matters, actually. And that's what you are. And uh, I think sometimes a poem that sums everything up kind of fails, actually, because it tries to explain it to you. There's no room for you to read it or hear it. Yeah. I just want to share that it's like abstract art, more uh -huh. like art that when I see art that's um, something abstracted or traditional, um, I, I don't try to understand it, appreciate it, see what I can see in it. But I, I must admit, I don't um, take that to poetry necessarily. Uh -huh. I, I, I guess I was, but it's more difficult. It, um, it allowed me to, like the mentor that came to my mind was it's okay, like to slow down. Like these poem, these poets, like took the time in their lives to slow down and write a poem. And that's what inspired me more than anything. And my go, go, have to do so much in this day and stop. Yeah. Just stop for a second. And yeah. it just created that sense in, for me to slow down and stop and be calm and appreciate just a sense of awareness that goes into every poem. Yeah. That's what struck me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was so <laughs> You know, I didn't say this earlier, but when, when I was thinking about how to introduce Sarah, one of the things I thought about is when I talk to Sarah about her practice, she always speaks about it in terms of writing. Mm -hmm. And if someone in most other professions did that, like a flag would go up. So if I was on a meditation retreat and a, a CEO of a, you know, McDonald's kept saying, oh, this really relates to my work, mm -hmm. I would be a little like, okay, well, mm -hmm. you know, we have to investigate this a little. <laughs> you know. um, but actually, um, uh, when I hear Sarah talk, it's like, the, there's no separation mm -hmm. between spiritual practice mm -hmm. and psychological awareness mm -hmm. and uh, awareness of the world mm -hmm. and writing. And um, to actually slow down and look at a floor and figure out how to talk about mm -hmm. that um, or how to paint it um, in a way that no one's done mm -hmm. is... Uh, it's a marvelous act. I mean, amazing. And uh, we all do this in different ways. It does take a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So think about who you're going to vote for for mayor. <laughs> because uh, we need some time. We're writing. Can't get it without streetcars and bike lanes and art support. <laughs> yes, Jack. What I love about the poetry. Um, it conjures up the essence of what you've talked about before, which is the not knowing. Mm -hmm. It conjures up and makes one aware of the sweetness of not knowing, the mm -hmm. sweetness of the moment. Mm -hmm. 
lends itself more to my story. Poetry just is that crucible where you can just relish the sweetness. Yeah, we maybe we'll have a prose night. <laughs> well, that's every night. Say something, but I. Just like get it like chills up and down my body, and it's so nice to receive that poem amongst other people, knowing that we're probably all feeling that together. Mm-hmm. It's such a such a visceral, full spine head feeling. Yeah. 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 I, I read that this morning, and I like at around eight a.m. I'd read it before, and every time it does that to me, and I was just crying and crying. I couldn't read it without crying it a few times, and. I was like, oh, I don't think I can read this. This is too much of a bomb. But then I was like, oh, this is exactly what uh, the poems that we need. <laughs> I need. Yeah. Well, I was touched by how um, these voices could touch me, uh, people I don't know, and people from <coughs> many, many years ago, and contemporary people, and how they can talk to me. And I hear a poem and think, oh, I have to hold that. So, and then. <laughs> a lot I I just uh, pour out a lot of love into silence like <laughs> silence is pregnant you know there's there's so much in silence so much more in silence sometimes and just observing kind of what's happening than there is in, in language and talking but tonight I learned or relearned um, and I'll forget again <laughs> but I'll, I learned tonight that uh, sometimes there Words really do say more than silence. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I wanted to, to, to just uh, end with a couple quotes uh, which relate to what you said. Um, the first, just a couple quotes about poetry in general. The first is by John Cocteau. The poet doesn't invent, he listens. Uh, John Cage, there is poetry as soon as we realize that we possess nothing. Like that little play. Uh, Mallarmé, it's the job of poetry to clean up our word-clogged reality by creating silences around things. Okay, so why don't we finish by chanting?